Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, Martin Luther, who was born more than 500 years ago in 1483, uh, he was one of the leading figures of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation, of course, was one of the most important events in modern Western history. Uh, that's when Christians, Christ followers, and the West uh, began to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, which at that time, 500 years ago, uh, was the main church uh, in Western Europe. Martin Luther was a German monk, and he spearheaded the Protestant Reformation. Well, Martin Luther was well acquainted with his own brokenness. He knew that he was an imperfect person, uh, that he was a sinner, that he was in desperate need of God to save him. And the story goes, I'm not sure if this story actually happened or not, but the story goes that one day he was in his monk's cell, and he was weeping over his sins, and he was just overcome with emotion, while his confessor, the young man to whom he was confessing his sins, was inexperienced, was uncomfortable, didn't know what to do, didn't know what to say, how to react. And so finally, just to drown out the weeping, and to say something, he started to recite the words of the Apostles' Creed, which we said earlier today in worship. He began by saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. But then suddenly, Martin Luther interrupted him. What did you say? What do you mean, what did I say? The young man asked nervously. That, that last part, what did you just say? Oh, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins, Luther exclaimed as if he were savoring each word, the forgiveness of sins, then there is hope for me somewhere. Then maybe, just maybe, there is a way to God. Martin Luther went on to declare the forgiveness of sins to be one of the most important articles of the Apostles' Creed. And that's the article that we are looking at this morning. And so if you haven't been with us in worship over the last few weeks, um, over the past month or so, our congregation here at Asbury has been walking through a series of sermons called Credo. Um, Credo. And I'll remind us that Credo is a Latin word that means I believe. And in this six-week sermon series, uh, we're going to finish it next week, in this six-week sermon series, uh, we are using the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, by the way, is an ancient statement of faith, an ancient statement of beliefs, probably the oldest statement of beliefs that we have outside the Bible. And so we are using the Apostles' Creed to explore our essential, non-negotiable, core beliefs as Christians, as Christ followers. And so this morning, we come 
to one of the last articles of the Apostles' Creed. It's not the last article, but it's one of the last articles of the Apostles' Creed. It's up here in the screen. Let's say this together on the count of three. One, two, three, go. The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Not only is this one of the last articles of the Apostles' Creed, but it's one of the shortest articles of the Apostles' Creed. Did you count how many words? Four words. That's it. Just four words. And yet these four words brought healing to Martin Luther. These four words carry more weight, more meaning, more impact than any of us could ever imagine. And so this morning in this sermon, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about sin. Who's excited about that? (laughs) Who came to worship today to hear a sermon about sin? We are going to talk about sin this morning, but in truth, before we talk about sin, it's important for us to recognize as Christians that when we're describing human beings like ourselves, when we're talking about human beings like ourselves, we do not begin the conversation, listen to me, we do not begin the conversation with the fact that we're sinners. We are sinners, let's be clear about that, and we'll talk more about that in great detail this morning, but that's not where we begin our description of human beings. Instead, we begin our description of human beings where the Bible begins it. In Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, where it says that all human beings have been made and created in whose image? In the image of Almighty God. And so listen with me to these words. This is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, this, This is the first statement that the Bible makes about human beings. It says, so God created human beings in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, far too often in church circles, when we're describing human beings, we don't begin with Genesis 1. We don't begin with this incredible statement that we just read that we have been made and designed in God's image. Instead, what we often do is we skip past Genesis 1. We go straight to Genesis chapter 3. Two chapters later, where it talks about the story of Adam and Eve, and we get into a monologue about sin. Now, don't mishear me. Don't misquote me. We are sinners, as I said a moment ago, and we are going to talk about that today. But that is not the first thing that we say about human beings. Instead, the first thing that we say about human beings as Christians, per Genesis 1, is that we have been made in God's image. Consequently, we are children of God, and we are those who have been called from the foundation of this world to live in holy relationship with God. I heard a story about a minister who was part of an examining committee, and this committee would examine candidates for pastoral ministry to determine if these candidates were ready to serve a church as pastors. Well, oftentimes during the interview, uh, the minister would ask the candidate, who was pretty nervous, understandably so, But he would ask the candidate to look out the window. And so not knowing why he was asking this, the candidate would look out the window, and then he would say, tell me what you see out there. And the candidate would say, I see a person. Okay, do you know that person personally? Do you have a relationship? Do you have a friendship with that person? And the candidate would say, no. Okay, describe that person theologically. How would you answer that question? Describe some stranger theologically? In his experience of asking that question, the minister said 
that the candidate would generally give one of two answers, or the candidates would give one of two answers. Either they would say that that person is a sinner in need of redemption, or they would say that that person, whether they realize it or not, is a child of God. They're made in God's image. That they are loved and upheld by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, technically, are both those answers true? Yes, they're both true based on Scripture. But in his experience of asking that question, the seasoned pastor said that those who answered with the second response tended to make better ministers because they saw human beings for who they primarily are and for who God intended them to be. So all that to say, we do not begin our description of human beings with sin, but at the same time, we don't shy away from the topic of sin. We don't ignore sin because the Bible mentions sin. In fact, as I was doing some work in this message, I found out that the Bible mentions the word sin more than 400 times, and both the Old and New Testaments included, uh, the Bible mentions the word sin more than 400 times, but that begs the question, what exactly is the Bible talking about when the Bible talks about sin? Well, the Greek word for sin, because remember, the New Testament was written in Greek, uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in Greek, there's a little bit of Aramaic in there, but primarily in Greek, the Greek word for sin in the New Testament is hamartia. Can you all say this with me? Hamartia. Hamartia is an archery term that literally means to miss the mark. Who here has ever shot an arrow before? Anybody here ever done archery before? Is it easy? Maybe it is for you, not for me. I have shot an arrow a bunch of times. I've never actually hit the target, but I have shot an arrow a bunch of times. Uh, when I was a counselor at the Warren Willis camp uh, in uh, Fruitland Park, Florida, when I was in college, sometimes they would have me teach archery. I don't know why, because I was really bad at it. And so it was not good for me to teach the kids how to do archery. I would just basically tell them what to do while not demonstrating what to do, because I didn't want to embarrass myself. But remember, the New Testament was written during a period when people would hunt with bows and arrows, or they would go into battle with bows and arrows. So think about an archer. An archer has his bow, he has his arrow, he pulls back, he aims for his target, he lets go of his arrow, the arrow goes flying, and then at the uh, person is me, he misses the target. And that's the picture of sin that the New Testament paints for us, that there is an intended mark or target that God has for our lives, that God wants us to live in a certain way. God expects us as human beings to live in a certain way, but we miss that mark and what we think, and what we say, and what we do. I mentioned the story of Adam and Eve just a moment ago, uh, because that's where the story of sin begins in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. Keep in mind, God did not intend human beings to be sinners. Sin was something that we collectively as human beings chose on our own, and the story of Adam and Eve teaches that. And so, in the story of Adam and Eve, God makes the first two people, Adam and Eve, he puts them in the Garden of Eden, this lush paradise that God has created, and God gives them free range. He says, hey, listen, you are free to eat from any tree here in the garden. Any tree that you desire to eat from, go ahead and eat from it. There's just one tree, the tree that's located in the very middle of the garden. Don't eat from that tree. 
Otherwise, if you eat from it, you'll die. Now, I've mentioned in past sermons that oftentimes people will come up to me after reading that story, and they'll say, hey, Chris, why did God put that tree there? It seems as if God was setting Adam and Eve up for failure. I mean, if you tell somebody not to do something, there is a strong possibility that they're going to do it. When I was a kid, I'd go into an elevator, and my mom would say, don't push that red button. But just by drawing attention to the red button, it made me want to push it. And I've pushed it a few times. I've even pushed it a few times. Well, maybe not as an adult. (laughs) Has anybody ever done that before? Right? So if you tell somebody not to do something, they're going to do it. So why did God put that tree there? When we read the story too literally, we miss the deeper meaning. We have to recognize what the tree stands in for. The tree stands in for freedom. Adam and Eve had the choice. They had the ability to eat from that tree or not eat from that tree. To listen to God, not listen to God. To obey God, disobey God. God didn't coerce them either way. They weren't robots. They weren't puppets. God didn't manipulate them. God didn't twist their arm. And yet they chose to take their freedom and do the very thing that God told them not to. And what's also important to note is that as theologians tell us, Adam and Eve are archetypal human beings. What the heck is an archetypal human being? It basically means they stand in for all of us, that their story isn't simply their story. It's not simply the story of two people long ago. Their story is actually a story of the entire human race, that collectively we chose to take the freedom that God infused in us, this gift that God built into us, not to follow God, not to pursue God, not to love God as God intended, but instead to do our own thing. And as a result of these actions, the actions of all human beings collectively, sin came into this world. Like an alien force, uninvited, it stormed into this world, um, affected, infected everything, enslaved us, ensnared us. In fact, with the exception of Jesus, no one has ever existed on this planet whom sin has not impacted. With the exception of Jesus, no one has ever existed on this planet whom sin has not impacted. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Does Paul say, for some people have sinned? Does he say, for this side of the room has sinned? No, he says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. What is God's glorious standard? That's the intended mark that we just talked about, that target that God has for our lives that we miss in what we think and what we say and in what we do. And let's be clear about something. Sin is not simply something that we can shake off. You know, sometimes you get a bug on you, and somebody says, oh, there's a bug on you, and you kind of shake it off. Sin is not something that we shake off. Its effects run deep. Actually, the early church fathers, when referring to sin, uh, they used this term called original sin. Has anybody here ever heard of original sin before? I know some of you grew up Catholic, and if you grew up Catholic, you've probably heard of original sin. It's a Catholic teaching. But in truth, it's not just the Catholic teaching. Many Protestant churches, including United Methodists, subscribe to original sin. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, he believed, he taught about original sin. It's part of our articles of religion as the United Methodists. Now, original sin 
is sometimes misunderstood. But here's what original sin is. Original sin basically means that as human beings, we are born with a predisposition to sin. We are born with a tendency to sin and to rebel against God. Now, to be fair, we will not find the term original sin anywhere in the Bible. It's not found in the Old Testament. It's not found in the New Testament. I believe St. Augustine, an early church father, he coined the term original sin. That's my understanding. But in my estimation, even though the term isn't found in the Bible, the teaching is there. For example, listen to what David writes, King David, uh, in Psalm 51, verse 5, David wrote a lot of the Psalms. This is what he says in Psalm 51, and as an aside, David wrote these words during one of the darkest seasons of his life, when he had sinned tremendously. He said, for I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. In other words, there has never been a moment when we haven't had to deal with sin. And just to help us further wrap our minds around the subject of sin, there are two categories that theologians like to use when talking about sin. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission, and this is up here on the screen, sins of commission are the bad things that we do that we know we shouldn't do, like lying, spreading rumors, gossip, stealing. Those are sins of commission. Sins of omission, on the other hand, are the good things that we know we should be doing, but we omit from doing them. Remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan? Jesus begins the story by saying that there was a man. He was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. All of a sudden, he was overcome by some bandits. They beat him up. They stripped him of his clothes. They left him for dead. They robbed him. Well, the people who robbed him, who beat him up, they were committing what? Sins of commission. But then what happens next in the story? The religious people come by. Do they help the guy? No, they look the other way. So they were committing sins of omission by failing to help him. Make no mistake about it. Sins of omission are just as bad. I know something about this. When I was in high school, I got a job at a pet store. And I had that job during the rest of my time in high school. I had it for two and a half years. I remember the day I turned 16, I tried to get a job when I was 14, nobody would hire me. I tried to get a job when I was 15, nobody would hire me. And so finally, the day I turned 16, I figured I was old enough to finally have a job. And so I took my bike, because I didn't have a driver's license yet, and I rode all up and down US 1 in Fort Lauderdale, and I went into store after store and restaurant after restaurant applying for a job. And this is when you actually had to fill out the application by hand. And so I think I was getting carpal tunnel. I filled out so many applications. Nowadays, you do all that stuff on the computer. Only one place called me back. It was this pet store just a few miles from my house. And so the gentleman called me on the phone, invited me to come in for an interview. He interviewed me. He decided to hire me, took a risk on me. I really appreciated that. So I'd been at the store for about two months, and I was, you know, really coming into my own. I was growing into my skill set. I liked to interact with the customers and to sell things, and just really was feeling comfortable there. Well, about two months or so after I had been hired, this gentleman who had hired me, at the time, he was the assistant store manager, but then the corporate office had promoted him to manager over the whole store. Unfortunately, it didn't go very well. Uh, the company kind of just a lot of things got chaotic, and so the corporate office decided to demote him 
back to being assistant store manager. And then they put him at another store for further training. It's embarrassing, demoralizing. And there were a lot of people at the store who felt loyal to him because he had given them a job. And they were outraged by all this. Now, what I forgot to mention is that what made that pet store unique is that we had this large saltwater fish tank in the back of the store. There weren't many pet stores in our area that sold saltwater fish, but we sold saltwater fish, and so people who, who had saltwater fish, they would come for miles to purchase them. Well, one night, as we were closing up shop, we closed at 9 o'clock at night, I was in the back of the store where the saltwater fish tank was, and I was vacuuming the rugs. Meanwhile, this one guy came in, and he decided that he was going to get back at the store for demoting that manager by stealing some saltwater fish. And his plan the very next day was to say that the fish had died and that he had thrown them away. And nobody ever verified that kind of thing or checked up on it, so it was pretty easy to get away with that. So here I am vacuuming. Here he is stealing. I didn't help him, but I also lacked the courage to speak up and to say anything to him or to anybody else. His sin of commission was what? Stealing, theft. My sin of omission was not doing anything about it. Remember a few months after that, I had stepped away from the church for a little bit, much to my mom's chagrin. I had stepped away from the church. I was struggling with my faith and just had a lot of questions and didn't really feel like I had any answers. Well, finally, I began to reconnect with the church and I reconnected with my youth group. And the summer of my junior year of high school, uh, just a few months after I had been hired, I was invited to go on this spiritual retreat, and I had this profound experience of God's love. It was like I was falling in love with God all over again. And then from that experience, my call to pastoral ministry began to emerge. But as my call to pastoral ministry began to emerge, and as I began to, to really fall in love with God, I kept thinking back to this experience, this situation. And it was eating away at me. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't focus. I knew that my integrity was on the line, and so I decided to go to the store manager, the new store manager, because again, they had demoted the other guy. And by this point, the employee who had stolen had quit, and I came clean, and I told them what happened, and I was prepared to face whatever consequences were going to be given to me. And this store manager was gracious enough to say, Chris, thank you for telling me. I appreciate it. Now get back to work. All of us are guilty of sin through what we do and through what we don't do. And here's another truth about sin. That sin is evidenced by the bad that we do and the good that we fail to do, but at its deepest level, sin is so much more than all that. Sin is so much more than the bad that we do and the good that we fail to do. At its deepest level, sin is a relational issue. Sin ruptures our relationship with God, the one who made us for himself, created us in his image, but sin also ruptures our relationship with the people around us. The story of Adam and Eve that we mentioned a few moments ago, it demonstrates that. So in this story, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. They do the thing God tells them not to. It says in the Bible that their eyes are opened. They know that they've done wrong. They've screwed up. They see that they're naked, and they decide to hide behind some bushes. Well, what happens next is God comes walking in the garden. Do you remember the question that God asked? Where are you? 
Now that seems like a strange question for the maker of the universe to ask. Certainly the creator of everything knows where two naked people are hiding. Amen? But when we read the question too literally, we miss the deeper meaning. God's not asking, where are you physically? God knew where Adam and Eve were physically. God's asking, where are you spiritually? Where are you in relationship to me? Adam and Eve were no longer in relationship with God in the way that they had been, but they were also no longer in relationship with each other in the way that they had been. Because what happens next is God calls them out for their sin, and Adam says, well, it's not my fault. It was the woman. She gave me the fruit. What a stand-up guy. He puts the blame on her. And this is what sin does. Sin ruptures our relationship with God, but sin also ruptures our relationships with other people. Marriages fall apart because of sin, don't they? Friendships break down because of sin. Every societal problem that we experience, that we read about in the news, at its core is because of sin. Don't you feel uplifted this morning? Isn't this a feel-good message? Listen, I'm not trying to bog us down or depress us. I'm simply trying to get us to grapple with the seriousness of sin. In fact, another image of sin that comes to mind for me, we talked about missing the mark. Well, another image that comes to mind for me is a chain, a long chain heavy chain that just wraps itself around us, cripples us, paralyzes us, mangles us, suffocates us, prevents us from experiencing the very life that God intends. And so the question is, is there any hope for us to be released from this chain? There is. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, Verse 24, in the first half of verse 25, he says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. And Paul's not just referring to himself, he's referring to all of us. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. I can just imagine Paul. He jumps up in his chair as he's writing this. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, found such solace in this article from the Apostles' Creed because Luther knew and understood that this article bears witness to the truth that in Jesus, God has done something about sin. God has entered the world to release us from our sin. In fact, the Greek word for forgive that we use in the Lord's Prayer or that we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer, the Greek word for forgive that's found in Matthew chapter 6, the Greek word that's used there is a theomy. A theomy. And a theomy literally means to release, to set free. And this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, specifically through his crucifixion of the cross and his resurrection from the dead, God releases us from our sin. God rips off the chain. He tears off the chain and invites us to no longer be prisoner to that which holds us captive. In March of 2011, the New York Times featured a story about a 51-year-old ex-convict named Robert Salzman. This is a picture of Robert Salzman. Don't I remind you of him? We kind of similar features, right? Growing up, Robert Salzman had it tough. He was orphaned when he was born. He was put in a variety of foster homes. He never stayed in one place for very long. And one of the foster mothers that he was with beat him horrifically. 
He suffered terrible physical abuse. Consequently, he would act up when he was in school to try to be tough, and eventually he turned to crime. He made a career out of that. Spent a lot of time in the juvenile system, spent a lot of time in the adult prison system. Well, when he was finally released from prison in 2001, he had a difficult time adjusting to life on the outside. It's not hard to imagine why. He had spent so much time in prison. So he struggled to keep a job, he struggled to pay rent, and he bounced around at different homeless shelters. Well, nine years later, 2010, he finally caught a break. He was riding in a subway car in New York City when he was spotted by a movie writer and director. And it just so happened that this movie writer and director was working on a movie about a tough-looking ex-convict. And so who better to play the part of a tough-looking ex-convict than Robert Salzman? So he approached Robert Salzman. He heard his story. He invited him to audition for the part, and he got the part. He became an actor. But as they were shooting this film, he had a really hard time believing that he had actually been freed from prison. So at one point, they were filming on location at a Long Island prison. And it had been a long day, and they were in between scenes, and he wasn't needed for one of the scenes, so he decided that he was going to take a nap on a cot inside one of the cells. Well, when he woke up sometime later, he was disoriented. You ever been there before, disoriented, like, where am I? And so he sees all these prison bars, and he thinks, oh, no! I'm still in prison. And he began to weep. But then suddenly it dawned on him, wait a minute. I'm not a prisoner anymore. I'm a free man. Just the knowledge that he could walk out that cell at any moment filled him with so much happiness and so much joy. And the truth is, because of God's love for us, because of God's commitment to us in Jesus Christ, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we can enjoy freedom this very moment, no longer imprisoned by our sin. One of the core convictions of Christianity is that in Jesus, God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We were in no position to redeem ourselves. We were in no position to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves. But God redeemed us. God saved us. God rescued us. At the cross, God took the weight of human sin upon his own body. And in rising from the dead on Easter Sunday, God released us from sin's grip forever. Do we continue to struggle with sin here on earth? Yes, all of us do. But at the same time, we can enjoy the freedom that comes with knowing that we've been forgiven. We've been set free. I began my sermon this morning by talking about the comfort and the solace that Martin Luther found through this article of the Apostles' Creed. And we can find such solace and comfort too. Should you and I surrender our lives to Jesus and allow the power of his victory over sin to wash over us and to make us whole? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you have forgiven me of the many sins that I've committed over the course of my life. Thank you that you have forgiven all of us in Jesus, that all we have to do is receive this gift and to say yes. God, I pray that if there's anybody among us right now who hasn't received this amazing gift, that your Holy Spirit would move within them right now, even as I'm praying this prayer, to simply say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for entering this world. 
Thank you for dying on the cross, for rising from the dead. Please set me free and release me from sin as only you are able to do. God, your love for us is so great. It's hard to put into words. Thank you for this gift. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.